Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by the Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at colchestercurryhouse.com. You're listening to episode 136 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the World Economic Forum that meets in Davos, Switzerland, and the Great Reset they have planned for humanity. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stay around for the end of the episode as we'll have your mysterious feedback on our recent episode on Randonautica and Randonauting. And boy, did you have feedback. So you definitely want to stick around for that. The World Economic Forum is an organization that meets every January in Davos, Switzerland. They've been criticized as a secretive, sinister group of unaccountable business and political leaders. And now they're planning to use the COVID-19 pandemic as an opportunity to push an agenda they call the Great Reset, which will fundamentally transform the way the world works. Some have even accused them of releasing the COVID-19 pandemic deliberately. What is the World Economic Forum? What are they up to? And what should we make of the Great Reset? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, why did you decide to cover this topic on the show? As far back as episode 47, we've been covering mysterious elite groups like the Bilderbergers, which, you know, many people think are up to no good. Uh, we also covered Bohemian Grove in episode 51, and we'll be covering many mysterious and elite groups in the future, including the Trilateral Commission, Skull and Bones, the Freemasons, the Illuminati, and others. One such group is the World Economic Forum that meets every January at a ski resort in Davos, Switzerland. I've been meaning to do an episode on them for a long time, and when they announced their plans for the Great Reset, which they'll be discussing later this month at their conference, I said, now's the time. Although this January, oddly, they're varying from their usual practice of meeting in Davos, and apparently they're going to be meeting in Singapore instead. Well, let's start with the basics. What is the World Economic Forum? It's a non-governmental organization, or NGO, that was founded in 1971 by Klaus Schwab. He was a business professor at the University of Geneva, and he's currently 82 years old, so he's still around, and active in the World Economic Forum. Originally, the organization was called the European Management Forum. The plan was to introduce American ideas about how to manage businesses to European businessmen. But they quickly started to develop mission creep, where an organization starts expanding beyond its initial mission. Back in 1944, as World War II was winding down, an international conference was held in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, with representatives from all 44 allied countries. 
Its purpose was to plan for the post-war global economy by setting up a series of regulations for the international monetary system. Among other things, they narrowly fixed the exchange rates between the currencies of different nations, you know, like the American dollar, the British pound, and the French franc. The nations that agreed to the Bretton Woods Agreement would need to keep their currency values tied to the U.S. dollar and the price of gold. After the war, the Bretton Woods Agreement then went on to regulate money management in Europe, North America, Australia, and Japan. But by the early 1970s, it was breaking down. In 1971, President Richard Nixon took a series of economic measures now known as the Nixon Shock. These involved decoupling the U.S. dollar from the price of gold so that the U.S. came off the gold standard and the dollar became a purely fiat currency. By 1973, the ripple effects of the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system led the European Management Forum to expand its focus from just business management practices to include broader economic and financial concerns. 1973 also saw the Arab-Israeli Yom Kippur War, and the European Management Forum also decided to expand its focus to include matters like international conflicts and peace. Since political leaders are the ones who set national monetary policies and decide to go to war, the European Management Forum thus started inviting world political leaders to their Davos conference beginning in January of 1974. Now that they were branching out into other areas of the globe, though, they decided the word Europe in their name wasn't enough. And so in 1987, they changed their name to the World Economic Forum. And they've done a variety of things. In 1988, they helped Greece and Turkey avoid a war. In 1989, they brokered a meeting between then-current South African President F.W. de Klerk and the future President Nelson Mandela. In 1994, Israeli government minister Shimon Peres and PLO chairman Yasser Arafat signed a draft agreement on Gaza and Jericho under their auspices. And in 2017, Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping attended the Davos conference. If the World Economic Forum has grown beyond its original mission, how does it understand its function today? According to the mission statement on its webpage, the World Economic Forum is the International Organization for Public-Private Cooperation. The forum engages the foremost political, business, cultural, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas. It was established in 1971 as a not-for-profit foundation and is headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland. It is independent, impartial, and not tied to any special interests. The forum strives in all its efforts to demonstrate entrepreneurship in the global public interest while upholding the highest standards of governance. Moral and intellectual integrity is at the heart of everything it does. Our activities are shaped by a unique and institutional culture founded on the stakeholder theory, which asserts that an organization is accountable to all parts of society. The institution carefully blends and balances the best of many kinds of organizations, from both the public and private sectors, international organizations, and academic institutions. We believe that progress happens by bringing together people from all walks of life who have the drive and the influence to make positive change. So they're saying, we're the good guys. But a lot of people don't think that they are, for reasons that we'll see. 
Is the annual meeting in January the only time the World Economic Forum is active? No, they're active all year round, and they also hold other meetings. According to their webpage, The forum holds four major annual meetings. One, the World Economic Forum annual meeting held in Davos Klosters, Switzerland, shapes global, regional, and industry agendas at the beginning of the calendar year. Two, the annual meeting of the new champions, the forum's annual meeting on innovation, science, and technology, is held in the People's Republic of China. Three, the annual meeting of the Global Future Councils, held in the United Arab Emirates, brings together the world's leading knowledge community to share insights on the major challenges facing the world today. Four, the industry strategy meeting brings together industry strategy officers to shape industry agendas and explore how industries can shift from managing change to pioneering change. In addition, regional meetings and national strategy days provide focused engagement on the issues dominating regional and local agendas. An ongoing program of workshops, seminars, and meetings on issues relevant to each engagement provides opportunities to further drive purpose and action. And among their initiatives is a group they call Young Global Leaders, which is a group of 800 people who are being groomed as future leaders. Business Week describes the Young Global Leaders as the most exclusive social network in the world. What should we make of the World Economic Forum's claim in its mission statement to be, quote, independent, impartial, and not tied to any special interests, unquote. We don't normally go into analysis mode at this point in the episode, but we'll make a brief exception because it'll set up some of the criticisms of the forum. Their claim to be independent, impartial, and not tied to any special interests is false. It's pure publicity at best and conscious deception at worst. It also is contradicted by other things in their mission statement. They may be independent in the sense that there's nobody outside the organization pulling their strings, but they are definitely not impartial. According to their mission statement, they seek to demonstrate entrepreneurship in the global public interest while upholding the highest standards of governance. Moral and intellectual integrity is at the heart of everything it does. What that means is that they hold certain values. If they want to demonstrate entrepreneurship, then they value entrepreneurship. If they want to promote the global public interest, then they have a vision of what policies will promote the global public interest. If they want to uphold the highest standards of governance, then they have standards that they think should be used in governance. And if moral and intellectual integrity are important to them, as they say, then they must have certain moral and intellectual values. They also say, our activities are shaped by a unique institutional culture founded on the stakeholder theory, which asserts that an organization is accountable to all parts of society. That means that one of their values is the stakeholder theory. So they're not impartial. They have a definite set of values that are different from values held by other people. Now, you might try to excuse this by saying, well, they're not partial to anything except the values of their members. But that's something any organization can say, as its values are what define every group of people that meet together for a common purpose. So everybody is partial to their own values, and nobody shares the same values as everybody. And it's simply nonsense to say they're unrelated to special interests. By having certain goals that they seek to promote, 
they are by definition a special interest. That's what a special interest group is. It's a group of people that promotes certain goals that it considers special and worthy of promoting. What they're doing is using the phrase special interest group as a scare term to refer to groups that have goals they disagree with while simultaneously pretending that they're not a special interest group. That means that the organization is committing hypocrisy when it represents itself this way. And needless to say, many people have not been convinced by the forum's self-publicity. It comes across as, and it is, corporate happy talk baffle gab. What kind of criticisms have people made of the World Economic Forum? It varies from one group to another, you know, depending on the values that an individual group holds. But some of the common criticisms include they are an elite group that don't really represent global society, despite the fact that they pay lip service to the stakeholder theory. Instead, in the words of pop singer Bono of U2, their Davos meeting represents a bunch of fat cats in the snow. Or, as political scientist Samuel P. Huntington put it, they represent a special breed of elite people that he referred to as Davos Man. Davos Man, in his words, are rich people who have little need for national loyalty, view national boundaries as obstacles that thankfully are vanishing, and see national governments as residues from the past whose only useful function is to facilitate the elite's global operations. Like other elites, they are accused of being unaccountable to the broader public, as illustrated by the fact that they hold private meetings to which the general public is not invited. They also are accused of undemocratic decision-making, since the businessmen and politicians get together behind closed doors and make decisions about the direction in which they want to steer policy in their home countries, regardless of what the people in their home countries think. Then there are specific policies they support, which include globalization and capitalism, which anti-globalization activists claim are causing poverty and harming the environment. These policies are also claimed to promote the growing wealth gaps between ordinary people and the super rich elite along the lines of, you know, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. On the other hand, they're also accused of being socialist and promoting a socialist agenda. Another criticism is that they don't provide enough representation for women as leaders in the business and political communities are disproportionately male. In Switzerland, they are criticized as costing the local governments too much money to cover the security needs for their January meeting, and they've been accused of a lack of financial transparency in their public reporting of income and expenditures. Finally, people are generally concerned that the vision of the future that they're working towards is a bad one and that we shouldn't go that way. Part of that vision includes what's being called the Great Reset. What can you tell us about that? The Great Reset is an initiative that was proposed in May of 2020 by the World Economic Forum director Klaus Schwab and United Kingdom's Prince Charles. Schwab has also released a book on the subject, and we'll have a link to that so you can read it for yourself. The basic idea is that the COVID-19 pandemic has done significant damage to the world economy, and as the pandemic passes, we'll of course need to work on an economic recovery. 
But it's claimed we shouldn't build the economy back exactly the way it was. Instead, we should do things to improve it in various ways. Here's how they justify that on their website. COVID-19 lockdowns may be gradually easing, but anxiety about the world's social and economic prospects is only intensifying. There is good reason to worry. A sharp economic downturn has already begun, and we could be facing the worst depression since the 1930s. But while this outcome is likely, it is not unavoidable. To achieve a better outcome, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies, from education to social contracts and working conditions. Every country, from the United States to China, must participate, and every industry, from oil and gas to tech, must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. There are many reasons to pursue a great reset, but the most urgent is COVID-19. Having already led to hundreds of thousands of deaths, the pandemic represents one of the worst public health crises in recent history. And with casualties still mounting in many parts of the world, it is far from over. This will have serious long-term consequences for economic growth, public debt, employment, and human well-being. According to the Financial Times, global government debt has already reached its highest level in peacetime. Moreover, unemployment is skyrocketing in many countries. In the U.S., for example, one in four workers have filed for unemployment since mid-March, with new weekly claims far above historic highs. The International Monetary Fund expects the world economy to shrink by 3% this year, a downgrade of 6.3 percentage points in just four months. All of this will exacerbate the climate and social crises that were already underway. Some countries have already used the COVID-19 crisis as an excuse to weaken environmental protections and enforcement. In frustrations over social ills like rising inequality, U.S. billionaires' combined wealth has increased during the crisis, are intensifying. Left unaddressed, these crises, together with COVID-19, will deepen and leave the world even less sustainable, less equal, and more fragile. Incremental measures and ad hoc fixes will not suffice to prevent this scenario. We must build entirely new foundations for our economic and social systems. The level of cooperation and ambition this implies is unprecedented, but it is not some impossible dream. In fact, one silver lining of the pandemic is that it has shown how quickly we can make radical changes in our lifestyles. Almost instantly, the crisis forced businesses and individuals to abandon practices long claimed to be essential, from frequent air travel to working in an office. Likewise, populations have overwhelmingly shown a willingness to make sacrifices for the sake of health care and other essential workers and vulnerable populations, such as the elderly. And many companies have stepped up to support their workers, customers, and local communities in a shift toward the kind of stakeholder capitalism to which they had previously paid lip service. Clearly, the will to build a better society does exist. We must use it to secure the great reset that we so badly need. That will require stronger and more effective governments, though this does not imply an ideological push for bigger ones, and it will demand private sector engagement every step of the way. This text was written back when the Great Reset was announced at the beginning of June in 2020, and the economic situation has not proved to be as dire as they were saying. We are not currently facing the worst depression since the 1930s, for example. We've had a V-shaped experience with a sharp downturn when the lockdown started, followed by a sharp recovery. 
the Federal Reserve thus estimates that the U.S. economy will only be down by 3.7 percent for all of 2020 and that it will grow by 4 percent in 2021 once the vaccines are distributed. However, back in June, when the Great Reset was announced, things looked more dire, and that's reflected in what they were saying. They were saying that to avoid a 1930s-style Great Depression, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies. And they were saying that every country from the United States to China must participate, and every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. They also used really dramatic language like, we must build entirely new foundations for our economic and social systems. And that meant a revision to the existing social contracts, they said, that prevail in our societies. That's all very dramatic talk, and you might think such measures are necessary if you're facing a new Great Depression. But what do advocates of the Great Reset propose to actually do? Well, if you listen to Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum, it would involve more than just rebuilding the economy. Here's what he said when the Great Reset Initiative was launched. The COVID-19 crisis has shown us that our old systems are not fit anymore for the 21st century. It has laid bare the fundamental lack of social cohesion, fairness, inclusion and equality. Now is the historical moment, the time, not only to fight severe virus, but to shape the system for the need for the post-corona era. We have a choice to remain passive, which would lead to the amplification of many of the trends we see today. Polarization, nationalism, racism, and ultimately increased social unrest and conflicts. But we have another choice. We can build a new social contract, particularly integrating the next generation. We can change our behavior to be in harmony with nature again. And we can make sure that the technologies of the fourth industrial revolution are best utilized to provide us with better lives. In short, we need a great reset. We have to mobilize all constituents of our global society to work together. We must not miss this unique window of opportunity. So according to him, the Great Reset will promote fairness, inclusion, and equality. It will diminish things like nationalism, racism, and social conflict. It will involve a new social contract. It will change our behavior to be in harmony with nature again. And we will use the technology of the Fourth Industrial Revolution to do that. But what's the Fourth Industrial Revolution? It's a term that Schwab himself coined a few years ago, so it's one of his buzzwords, and by extension, it's one of the World Economic Forum's buzzwords. As Schwab counts them, the first industrial revolution occurred in the late 1700s and early 1800s, when we got better manufacturing methods as well as steam power. The second industrial revolution occurred in the late 1800s and early 1900s when we got railroad, telegraph, and telephone networks along with electrical power to drive industry. 
The third industrial revolution occurred in the late 1900s with the digital revolution and the introduction of computers and computer networks. And he thinks that we're now in a fourth industrial revolution that involves the advent of Internet-connected technology, the so-called Internet of Things, made up of smart devices and greater use of artificial intelligence, robotics, and other new technologies. Managing the transition through this fourth industrial revolution is one of the big projects and talking points for the World Economic Forum. Prince Charles is probably the most famous person who's been advocating the Great Reset. What has he had to say about it? When the project was announced, he said, To seize this uh, window of opportunity, I believe we need to do five things. First of all, to create momentum for the Great Reset, we need to capture the imagination and will of humanity. We will only change if we really want to change. Secondly, the global economic recovery must set us on a new trajectory of sustainable employment, of livelihoods and economic growth. To achieve scale, we must not be afraid to reorientate our long-standing incentive structures, which have been having such perverse effects on our planetary environment and on nature herself, if we are to reap the benefits afforded by a more sustainable world. Thirdly, we must redesign systems and pathways to advance net zero transitions globally. And in this regard, carbon pricing can form a critical pathway to genuinely sustainable markets. This reset moment is our opportunity to accelerate and align our efforts to create truly global momentum. Countries, industries and businesses moving together can create efficiencies and economies of scale that will allow us to leapfrog our collective progress and accelerate our transition. Fourthly, we must reinvigorate science, technology and innovation. This crisis has shown the importance of investing in science, technology and innovation. We are on the verge of catalytic breakthroughs that will alter our view of what is possible and profitable within the framework of a sustainable future. And fifthly, we must rebalance investment. Accelerating sustainable investment could offer significant economic growth and employment opportunities, including in green energy, the regeneration of nature and landscapes, circular bioeconomy, ecotourism, and green public infrastructure. It is time, therefore, to align sustainable solutions with funding in a way that can transform the marketplace. This would be the most dramatic act of responsible leadership ever seen by the global private sector and would at once provide a catalytic incentive for the public sector to follow. We have a golden opportunity to seize something good from this crisis. And as we move from rescue to recovery, therefore, we have a unique but rapidly shrinking window of opportunity to learn lessons and reset ourselves on a more sustainable path. It is an opportunity we have never had before and may never have again. So we must use all the levers we have at our disposal, knowing that each and every one of us has a vital role to play. So Prince Charles thought that five things need to be done. First, there needs to be a big publicity push to capture the imagination and will of mankind to get them behind the Great Reset, or it won't happen. Second, they need to make changes in the economy that will promote sustainable employment and economic growth. And here, sustainable doesn't just mean ongoing 
employment and economic growth. It's a piece of jargon that refers to having employment and growth in a way that doesn't harm nature through things like global warming. So it's kind of code word. Third, he says that they need to assist net zero transitions. This is another piece of jargon. A net zero transition is a transition of an industry or economy so that it doesn't emit any more greenhouse gases than it presently does. So if you want to emit more carbon in one way, you need to balance that by reducing carbon emissions in another way. Fourth, he wants to invest in science, technology, and innovation. The reason for this is that we don't currently have the technology needed to do these net zero transitions without harming the economy in dramatic ways. He thus wants to invest in technology on the conviction that it will alter our view of what is possible and profitable without greater carbon emissions. Fifth and finally, he wants to rebalance investment in businesses focusing on green initiatives. And he thinks that this is a unique opportunity to push these environmental initiatives and that a similar opportunity may not come again. Some people have accused the Great Reset of being a conspiracy. What do they have in mind by that? The idea that it's a conspiracy can take different forms. The simplest and most basic form is the idea that the World Economic Forum wants to use the present situation to conduct a power grab where they get to enact a harmful agenda. A step up from this is the idea that they want to use it to impose a kind of globalist, socialist, totalitarian government. A step up from that is the idea that they've been planning this for some time, waiting for a crisis like COVID so they could spring into action. And the most sinister form of the conspiracy theory is that they conspired to release the COVID pandemic on the world so that they could follow it with the Great Reset. All right. So it's not a conspiracy to, that I want to take a moment. I'm sorry, that's a really bad transition. But anyway, <laughs> that is a net zero uh, good transition. I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Daniel Z, Roberto B, Don T, Katina R, and Elisa M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor. So if you become a new patron at $10 per month after three months, our donor will give $30 to StarQuest to support all our shows, including Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, making your gift go even further. If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now is the time. Visit sqpn.com give today. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Colchester Curry House, helping people make authentic Indian cuisine from the comfort of their own home. Find authentic Indian spice blends and recipes at colchestercurryhouse.com. Jimmy, what theories are there about the World Economic Forum and its Great Reset proposal? 
From the reason perspective, we'll need to look at whether the various criticisms of the group are true, whether they're an unaccountable elite group and things like that. We also need to look at the vision that the World Economic Forum has for the future, and we need to look at the Great Reset, what problems there may be with it, and whether the conspiracy theory claims are true. First, what do we need to look at from the faith perspective? There's not a particularly large amount to say about the World Economic Forum from a specifically religious as opposed to moral perspective. Although the typical Davos man is quite a bit more secular than the average citizen of the world, the World Economic Forum itself doesn't really have an official set of religious beliefs, and it includes members from all the different religions, including atheism. It lacks an official religious creed, and so we can't evaluate a non-existent religious creed from a religious perspective. What it does have is an agenda with moral implications, and we'll be looking at those as we work our way through the reason perspective. Okay, so we'll talk about the reason perspective. Before we get to the Great Reset, what can we say about the World Economic Forum itself from the reason perspective? We'll start with some of the smaller criticisms of the group and work our way up to the bigger ones. Some of the criticisms are purely local, like the charges that some have made in Switzerland that local governments are putting up too much money to cover the security that the Davos meeting needs every year. Undoubtedly, they need security for all the world leaders who attend the conference, but how much security they need is a matter of prudential judgment. So is how much of a contribution, if any, local governments should make towards those security efforts. One also has to take into account the effect that holding the conference has on local businesses like restaurants, hotels, and so forth, who could make money from it. All told, the pluses and minuses of these things are for the people of Switzerland and other countries where they hold events to decide. Another criticism was that their financial reports lack sufficient transparency. What do you make of that? Somebody needs to keep an eye on their financials, but this is a rather technocratic concern. Obviously, we don't want people in the organization embezzling funds or diverting them to illegal or improper purposes. However, poring over the details of financial reports and looking for accounting irregularities is not really my thing. So I'll leave that to the financial reporters and auditors to do. I will note that the forum has apparently taken steps in recent years to make its financial reports more transparent. Also, the amount of financial mischief that could be concealed by a lack of transparency in this case is limited. In 2019, the World Economic Forum had an income of about $400 million with similar funds in reserve. So all told, they're less than a billion-dollar organization, which makes them a teeny part of the world economy. The global economy in 2018 was $133 So they're less than a hundred-thousandth of the global pie, with numerous companies being far larger than them. What about the criticism that they have a gender imbalance and don't include enough women? It's true that they have more men than women, but this isn't proof of discrimination against women. The fact is that men disproportionately pursue certain career paths and are more psychologically driven to reach the top in those careers. Men are more driven to acquire power and prestige than women are, and there are evolutionary reasons for that. You can try to make this drive that men have sound good by saying they're focused on leadership. Or you can make it sound bad by saying that men are 
obsessed with power and status. But it's true either way. As a result, men disproportionately become business and political leaders. So it's natural that more of them would show up at Davos and be active in a leadership organization like the World Economic Forum. My opinion is that there shouldn't be discrimination either way, meaning against either gender. Business and political systems should not be designed to give men an advantage over women or to give women an advantage over men. Instead, they should be designed to allow people to have equal opportunity. But equal opportunities don't mean equal outcomes. Equal opportunities will result in natural outcomes as people naturally use the opportunities that they are interested in and have aptitudes for. Without a lot of careful scientific studies that haven't been done, I couldn't presume to judge what an appropriate ratio of male and female participants at Davos would be. However, I will note that the World Economic Forum has been having increasing involvement by women. In 2001, only 9% of the people involved were women. But by last year, 2020, that had risen to 24%. This is in part due to a gender quota that the World Economic Forum created, which set a goal of having at least 20% of senior executives who attend be women. What about the criticism that they're an elitist group and that the Davos meeting is fat cats in the snow, as Bono put it? I think this is a fair criticism. They are a bunch of rich, powerful people, and that's naturally going to have an effect on the way they view the world. They're making a praiseworthy effort to think about other parts of society, as illustrated by their stakeholder theory. But human nature is fallen, and every group has trouble fully identifying with people who aren't members of their own group. The fact that they are an elite and that elitist thinking to some degree shapes their actions is illustrated by the fact that their board of directors isn't composed of people from every economic class. Not all of the stakeholders in society are represented on their board. Instead, if you look at the leadership and governance page on their website, they describe their board of trustees as exceptional individuals, and they say that it comprises outstanding leaders from business, politics, academia, and civil society. So they take pride in their board of governors being composed of elite individuals. Fat cats in the snow seems like a pretty fair description. What about the charges that they're unaccountable? They are unaccountable. In fact, they pride themselves on their independence and say that they're not beholden to any special interest groups. You remember those statements from their uh, mission statement. But this disguises the fact they are a special interest group. They're a certain group of people, and they have certain values and a certain vision of the future that they're seeking to promote. In essence, they're a lobbying institution. They get business and academic leaders together with politicians and then try to get everybody on the same page. That's essentially putting the politicians and the people who lobby them under the same institutional roof. Now, there's nothing wrong in principle with groups that do lobbying, you know, trying to make political leaders aware of the concerns that are out there in society. And there's nothing wrong with groups that seek to provide leadership. But as they say, the devil is in the details. How a lobbying group functions and what it advocates are important. 
And it's a source of concern when a group of elite people, including politicians, get together behind closed doors and start making policy decisions. That concern would be partially offset if they're serious about their stakeholder theory, because they'd be giving thought to other people in society, but that may be largely lip service. It's also partially offset by the fact that they can't simply impose their policy decisions on their own. The politicians have to go back to their countries where they can get pushback from voters and other special interest groups, you know, at least in democracies. And the business leaders have to go back to their companies where they are answerable to their own boards and shareholders and can get pushback from them. So there are some checks on agendas that get set by the World Economic Forum, but it's still a source of concern. And that concern is amplified by the fact that they are an international elite that doesn't share the values of broad swaths of the human population. That's what Samuel P. Huntington referred to when he coined the term Davos man, the idea that the people who attend Davos are a breed apart that don't fully share the values of others. Right. One of the values of Davos Man is supposed to be a kind of internationalism that doesn't feel loyalties to one's own nation. In fact, earlier you heard Klaus Schwab list nationalism as a rising trend that he wants the Great Reset to oppose. Can't nationalism be carried to unhealthy extremes? Oh, sure. Too much nationalism can start wars. In fact, that's how World War II got started, with excessive nationalism in Germany, Italy, and Japan leading them to embark on expansionist policies that led to the invasions that brought on the global conflict. On the other hand, we're not at a point where everybody in the world is at peace and we have a global consensus for a freedom-loving system of governance that would let us have a Star Trek-like utopian planetary government. There are actual and potential totalitarianisms out there in the world with multiple different ideologies. And as long as that's the case, it's not safe to have all of humanity's eggs in one basket. We thus need nations as a way of preserving freedoms on the local level and keeping a single global totalitarian power from squashing freedom everywhere. That means there is a legitimate role for nationalism, and Davos Man doesn't seem to appreciate that. On the other hand, the claim has been made that Davos Man has fallen apart or is in the process of falling apart, so the World Economic Forum isn't really united anymore. Correct. And I'd say that this is inevitable, given the direction the World Economic Forum has set for itself. They want to include basically all the countries of the world, and this means including people who have an intense nationalism. For example, in recent years, they've included Chinese communist leader Xi Jinping, and there is no way that he fits the model of a nationalistically disinterested Davos man. He's intensely focused on the interests of China and its way of doing things, and he's just one example. Another is Donald Trump, who attended the World Economic Forum as the president of the United States, and he obviously has an America First policy. So not everybody who goes to Davos shares the Davos man ideals. But there are still a lot of attendees who do share the, this ideology. Yes, there are many members of the World Economic Forum who view nation states as unimportant and as something to be gradually overcome, leading to a system of world government by a technocratic alliance of government and business leaders. This is one of the things that concerns anti-globalization activists. 
the World Economic Forum clearly supports the globalization of the world economy, effectively reducing trade barriers between nations and encouraging the free flow of commerce and technology between them. In fact, their website has a page called Globalization 4.0, where they say, Every industrial revolution has driven a wave of globalization. We're on the cusp of a new era as the data-driven technologies of the fourth industrial revolution rewrite the rules of the global economy. And since managing the so-called fourth industrial revolution is one of their key projects, managing the fourth wave of globalization is a natural consequence of that. What about the economic ideologies that dominate at the forum? They've been accused of both capitalism and socialism. Aren't those opposites? From one perspective, yes. Uh, capitalism involves the private ownership and control of goods and services, while socialism involves the public ownership and control of goods and services. Viewed in that way, the systems are opposites. And since the World Economic Forum was founded by business leaders, they definitely give an important place to capitalism. So why do people then accuse them of socialism? For a few reasons. One of them was something they brought on themselves. In 2016, they released a video called Eight Predictions for the World in 2030, which was a guide to what they saw happening over the next 14 years. Their first prediction in the video, so this is the one that got all the attention, featured an image of a smiling, rather wimpy-looking young guy coupled with the phrase, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, with the words nothing and be happy emphasized. The statement that by 2030 you'll own nothing was taken to represent a kind of socialist or even communist society where there's no private property, and the statement and you'll be happy, was taken as presenting this propertyless society as a socialist or communist utopia. And this prompted a lot of criticism. The image of the smiling, wimpy guy didn't help. It was easy for critics to think of him as what some have termed a low-testosterone or soy-boy type of individual who would be precisely the kind of dupe that would fall for the promise of a socialist or communist paradise. Is that actually what the World Economic Forum was advocating? No, so this was an unforced error. The forum's initial prediction made it look like they were saying something they weren't. If you keep watching the video, the image shifts to a drone delivering a package to someone's door, and the accompanying text says, whatever you want, you'll rent, and it will be delivered by drone. So the idea isn't that we won't have things or that we won't pay for them. Instead, it's that they'll be available on a rental basis, so you won't need to pay the price of a permanent purchase. Thus, rather than owning a car or a computer or a piece of software or a place to live, you'll rent these things. And we've already seen a shift towards a rent-based system in a lot of areas. I mean, for a long time, people have been renting apartments rather than buying houses. Now, people are leasing rather than buying cars or simply taking Uber. And in the future, you could take, you know, self-driving Uber. And software developers like Adobe and Microsoft want you to rent their products rather than buying them. And the World Economic Forum is just assuming that this trend will continue and accelerate in the future and that it'll be a good thing that will make people happy. 
Now, to what extent the trend will continue and to what extent it'll be a good thing, I'll leave to other people to judge. There's a place for both buying and renting, although for most things I personally prefer buying. But the fact that they included the concept of rent in the video means that they do see an ongoing role for capitalism. Setting aside the unforced mistake with the video, is there a reason to see the World Economic Forum as socialist? I think there is a case to be made that despite being capitalists, they are also socialists to a degree. Despite capitalism and socialism being opposite in principle, they are often combined in practice. There are a bunch of different ways to define the two concepts, uh, and so here I'm going to simplify a bit, but here we'll treat the basic distinction between them as involving how much of the economy is owned or controlled by private individuals and how much of it is owned or controlled socially, which for practical purposes we may take as meaning owned or controlled by the government. Viewed in this way, no nation historically has ever been 100% capitalist because the government always controls some elements of the economy. Now, some of our anarchist friends, anarcho-capitalists, argue that we should try 100% capitalism, but that hasn't taken hold thus far. It may have been tried in certain small areas, but the world has yet to produce a civilization that was purely capitalistic. All through history, governments, for example, have maintained security services and militaries, and that means they've had to pay the guards, soldiers, and mercenaries in their employ, making them responsible for at least that segment of economic activity in the nation. So it's not a question of a society being all one thing or all the other. We may call societies with a high degree of private ownership and control capitalist societies and societies with a high degree of public ownership and control we may call socialist societies, but there's always a mix of the two forms of ownership and control. Which type of society do you tend to favor? I favor more private ownership. As we may discuss in future episodes, the development of capitalism and free markets led to the lifting of huge swaths of the human population out of poverty. But I recognize that there is a role for government, especially given the fallen state of the world today and how we're not ready for a Star Trek-like democratic global utopia. How does the U.S. fare in terms of the public-private distinction you've described? It's varied over time, but let's look at recent times, let's say the last 50 years. The gross domestic product, or GDP, is the total market value of all the goods and services that the U.S. produces in a given year, and that makes it a good measure of the size of our economy. Back in 1970, about 34% of the gross domestic product was government spending. So that would mean our economy was about a third in the public sector, or one-third socialist by this measure. The rate of public control varies over time, though, and it peaked in 2010 with almost 44% of the gross domestic product being public spending. It then came down a bit, and in 2018, it was around 38% public spending. So you could argue that by this rough measure, the U.S. has about a 40% socialist economy and about a 60% capitalist economy. And a lot of business people are perfectly comfortable with this. In Europe, the government spending to GDP ratios are even higher, and European business people seem to be quite happy with that. Thus, there can be a blend of capitalism and socialism, and I think many members of the World Economic Forum are 
perfectly content with that. In fact, if I were to characterize the overall ideological outlook of the forum, I would say that it looks center left to me. It's on the left because it sees a big role for government, but it does see a role for the private sector, so it's still towards the center. It's not a hard left ideology that would want to completely socialize the economy. Sometimes people refer to a concept called crony capitalism. Does that have any bearing on the World Economic Forum? A crony is a longtime friend or companion. And there's nothing wrong with having cronies. Everybody needs friends, even though the word has acquired a negative connotation recently. Crony capitalism is a form of capitalism where the parties in the economy, the business people, are cronies or friends. This can involve collusion between different business people to diminish competition between each other and thus drive up prices for the public. It also can include collusion between the business class and the political class that regulates the market with government contracts, for example, being handed out to favored business partners. Crony capitalism is always a danger. Back in 1776, Adam Smith wrote this in his book, The Wealth of Nations. People of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. The idea is that if business people get together to talk, even at social gatherings, they will start looking for ways to benefit themselves at the expense of the public. Smith concluded that although social meetings between business people are unavoidable, the government should do nothing to facilitate them. Now, let's compare that to what happens at the World Economic Forum. We've got a bunch of business people getting together, and they're not just getting together socially. They're getting together specifically to discuss policy. And instead of government officials not encouraging such gatherings, they're actually participating in the discussion and trying to set policy directions. So I'd say the potential for crony capitalism is high. Doesn't the forum argue that this isn't the case, that they're really looking out for how to improve conditions for everyone in the world and not just their own self-interests? Absolutely. They have lots of talk about stakeholders and inclusivity and diversity and poverty relief and popular environmental programs like global warming mitigation. The question is, how serious are they about all this and how much of it is just virtue signaling that's meant to be a smokescreen? After all, a bunch of fat cats meeting privately would be expected to talk about how they're really doing this for the good of everyone. You wouldn't expect them to just twirl their mustaches and cackle evilly. How sincere do you think forum members are then? I think it's a mix. Human nature being what it is, I think there's a lot of selfishness and hypocrisy, not all of which is consciously recognized by the participants because people fool themselves about how virtuous they are. I also think there's a good bit of virtue signaling, but I don't think it's an entire sham. I think many members are quite sincere about the different public benefit projects they're pushing, and I think many of them are convinced that the threat of global warming is real and that urgent steps are needed to counter it. What's your view of that? I'm still in the process of researching the question. We'll have a future episode devoted to climate change, but at this point, I'm skeptical of the extreme claims that are made, but I'm also open to seeing evidence for more moderate versions of the theory. Let's talk about the World Economic Forum's vision of the future. What were the other seven predictions they made for the year 2030? I should note that these 
don't all represent positive predictions. It's not like the World Economic Forum is champing at the bit to see all of these things happen. I also should note that even though they left the video online for several years after they posted it in 2016, they eventually took it down, presumably because it was attracting or could attract negative attention. But the internet is forever, so other people saved it, and we'll have a link to where you can see it for yourself. After their prediction that you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, their second prediction was the U.S. won't be the world's leading superpower. A handful of countries will dominate. That's something you might have mixed feelings about, especially if you're a citizen of the U.S., but I think it's something a lot of forum participants would welcome. As we've discussed, Davos Mann, in his classic form, would like to see nation-states fade in their importance, and that would include the fading of the U.S. as the leading superpower. The third prediction was, you won't die waiting for an organ donor. We won't transplant organs, we'll print new ones instead. And this is one that's likely to happen as we're working on organ printing technology now. And it would be a welcome development in my view, although whether we'll have it fully online by 2030, I don't know. A fourth prediction was you'll eat much less meat, an occasional treat, not a staple, for the good of the environment and our health. I'm skeptical about this one on all fronts, both the environmental claim and the claim that meat is unhealthy. I expect we'll still be eating a lot of meat, although with some meat substitutes like the Impossible Burger and eventually with lab-grown meat. The fifth prediction was a billion people will be displaced by climate change. We'll have to do a better job at welcoming and integrating refugees. I'm quite skeptical of this one. A billion people would be something like one in seven or one in eight people. And I very much doubt that one in seven or one in eight people will be displaced and become a refugee by global warming in the next 10 years. This is one of the more extreme kinds of claims about climate change that has repeatedly not come true in the past, and I doubt it will come true in the next decade. The sixth prediction was polluters will have to pay to emit carbon dioxide. There will be a global price on carbon. This will help make fossil fuels history. I'm doubtful about whether there will be a global carbon pricing system in 2030. It may or may not happen, but if people try to institute one globally, they're going to get significant pushback. So far, plans like this haven't worked. And notice how tentative Prince Charles was in talking about carbon pricing as a possible thing we could do, while at the same time noting that the Great Reset won't happen if people don't want it to. The seventh prediction was you could be preparing to go to Mars. Scientists will have worked out how to keep you healthy in space. And then they add a question, the start of a journey to find alien life? I think it's quite likely that people will be preparing to go to Mars by 2030. In fact, Elon Musk has plans to get people there by 2026. The eighth and final prediction was Western values will have been tested to the breaking point. Checks and balances that underpin our democracies must not be forgotten. Now, this is a, a pretty vague prediction. You know, Western values are going to be tested to the breaking point. What does that mean? How do you quantify that? How do you know when that's happened? 
and then they couple it. And I think this is the real reason they include it. They couple it with an aspiration not to forget the checks and balances that democracies need. So this is more of a warning than a prediction. Don't forget these checks and balances because democracies need them. But I don't see any objective way to assess this prediction. So I'll leave it aside as too vague. Let's talk about the Great Reset as a conspiracy theory. What can we say about that? Let's start with the most extreme theory that the World Economic Forum released the coronavirus in order to create the opportunity for the Great Reset. I don't see any evidence for that. And given the alarmist nature of the claim and the absence of evidence, I would classify it as irresponsible speculation. The implausibility of the claim also can be used to discredit legitimate concerns about the Great Reset. If you want your criticisms of the Great Reset to be taken seriously, you should stay away from this particular claim, you know, that that COVID was deliberately released, unless you've got hard evidence to back it up. Somewhat less dramatic is the claim that although the forum didn't release the coronavirus, they were planning for the Great Reset and waiting for a global catastrophe to occur. I don't see good evidence for this one either. Maybe it was in the back of some forum members' minds that if a catastrophe occurred, they could use it to advance their agenda. But I don't have evidence that they were actively planning for it and that they had the Great Reset just waiting on the shelf for the next crisis. It seems more to me like the crisis struck and then they opportunistically started cobbling together a plan to advance their agenda. That's because, as we'll see, the specifics of the Great Reset aren't actually concrete. They're really vague and still need to be worked out. And that suggests that they didn't really have all of this formulated in advance, certainly not as any kind of detailed plan. What about the claim that this is a conspiracy to usher in a global socialist totalitarian government or world order? I think that there are aspects of the Great Reset that could lead to greater to a greater degree of socialism in the world economy, as well as things that could harm freedoms. But I don't have evidence that they're wanting to set up a global totalitarian state or world order. That's inconsistent with their stakeholder ideology and the checks and balances that they recognize democracies need. That's not to say that totalitarianism couldn't result, but I don't think it's their conscious goal. What about the milder form of the theory that this is a conspiracy to grab power and advance their agenda? It's definitely an attempt to exploit the current situation to advance their agenda. They've been explicit about the fact that they see an opportunity in the current time of instability and they want to exploit it. Both Klaus Schwab and Prince Charles spoke about how this is a precious opportunity that may not come again. So, they see the current crisis as something they can use to further their agenda. And it's easy to see them as reflecting a sentiment that was expressed back in 2008 by President Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, who said, You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. At the time, a lot of people criticized Emmanuel's never-let-a-crisis-go-to-waste attitude. It was viewed as cynical, exploitative, and as a form of dirty pool, taking advantage of the instability of a situation to ram your agenda through, rather than letting its merits be tested by calm and rational discussion and debate. 
And that's the fundamental question. What are the merits of the proposals that the forum is making with the Great Reset? Before we get to the merits of the Great Reset, what do you make of calling this version of the theory a conspiracy? It's going to depend on how you define the word conspiracy. In law, a conspiracy is an agreement between two or more people to do something illegal in the future. We don't have evidence of the World Economic Forum agreeing to do anything illegal. They're talking about formulating policies that would then have to be voluntarily enacted by businesses and governments. So the Great Reset doesn't appear to be a conspiracy by the standard legal definition. On the other hand, it might be a conspiracy if you broaden the term to include things besides illegal agreements. If you think the Great Reset is a bad idea and you define a conspiracy as a group of people to do something that you think is a bad idea, well, then it would be a conspiracy. But so would any group trying to do something that you think is a bad idea. And that cheapens the word conspiracy and robs it of objective meaning. It also makes you easier to dismiss as a crank and a conspiracy nut, since you're using the word conspiracy to refer to things that you just don't approve of. My inclination is to reserve the word conspiracy for things that involve objective illegality and thus preserve its objective meaning. If you want to say, though, that the Great Reset is a bad idea or that the World Economic Forum is taking improper advantage of a crisis to promote it, be my guest. So what criticisms of the Great Reset do you think are legitimate? I think it's entirely legitimate to say that we shouldn't make big, hasty decisions now. If the World Economic Forum can make proposals that have merit, those merits should be obvious once the COVID crisis passes and they can be discussed and debated then. If you look at the language they're using, it's very alarmist, and they're talking about doing very dramatic things like tearing up social contracts and replacing them with new ones and fundamentally transforming aspects of how the world works. Such fundamental changes should not be done hastily if they should be done at all. As a result, I think it's entirely legitimate to say, stop, slow down. If you want to make proposals, fine. But we shouldn't rush to implement untried, untested, undebated ideas that have big consequences. What about the merits of the proposal itself? Well, that's the thing. They really haven't announced a lot of concrete proposals yet. Some critics have noted that they've got a lot of high-flown language and overall goals about improving the climate, but they're remarkably short on specific policies they want to implement. Now, in their defense, they might say, the time has been too short to have come up with such proposals. I mean, when we first announced the Great Reset in June of 2020, it was just a general idea. And at our meeting in January 2021, we'll start formulating specific recommendations. Okay, fine. I understand that it takes time to come up with specific proposals. But it also takes time to consider and debate proposals, and they should not be acted on prematurely, especially if they have big consequences. How successful do you think advocates of the Great Reset will be? I'm skeptical of it resulting in big changes in how the world works. It's easy to make dramatic proposals. It's another to get people to actually agree to follow them. We've already had numerous dramatic climate proposals come out of climate conferences and climate summits, and 
these agreements have a noticeable tendency to either not stick, not be followed, or get significantly watered down over time. That's because it's easy to make agreements that sound good on paper, but when it comes time to implement them, reality sets in and people realize the costs of what's involved. The fact is, we don't have the technology we would need to implement dramatic climate proposals without a massive hit to people's quality of life. That's why climate change activists have been encouraging investment in green technologies for years. And it's why Prince Charles spoke about making further investments as part of the Great Reset so that new technologies can expand what we consider possible and profitable. But such technologies have repeatedly failed to materialize so far, and that's why climate proposals tend not to stick. Because without dramatic new technologies, implementing them would harm the economy, meaning people's jobs and livelihoods. And when people realize that, they get a lot less enthusiastic about dramatic climate proposals. Further, the advocates of the Great Reset don't sound all that confident of their ability to pull it off. Both Schwab and Prince Charles talked about this as being a precious window of opportunity. And it was mentioned that that window is rapidly closing and that one like it may not come again. I think that's right. When the Great Reset was proposed in June... Its advocates were talking about us needing to do it in order to avoid a 1930s-style Great Depression. But as we saw, the recovery has been so swift that the Federal Reserve estimates the U.S. economy will only be down by 3.7% for all of 2020, and they estimate it'll grow robustly by 4% in 2021 as the vaccines are rolled out. In other words, the urgency behind the Great Reset already has been drying up and is likely to dry up further. As Prince Charles said, We will only change if we really want to change. And I think that's right. We'll only change if we want to, and I don't think we'll want to. I certainly don't think we'll want to enact the kinds of dramatic changes that they're talking about right now. That's not to say that the Great Reset won't have any effect. They may get part of their agenda approved and enacted, but I suspect that, like previous climate agreements, it either won't stick, won't be followed, or will get watered down over time. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset? I think the World Economic Forum can be fairly described as a bunch of fat cats who like to meet in the snow. They don't qualify as a conspiracy, at least the way I use the term, but they do represent an elite special interest group. They, like other groups, are neither all good nor all bad. They've prevented some wars and things like that. And that's good. I think that they are fallen human beings that have a mix of hypocrisy and sincerity. I think that they need to be monitored and given pushback because they pose a significant risk of advancing crony capitalism, socialism, and environmental policies that are ill-advised. But they also are capable of making policy proposals that could be good and could benefit people, you know, like the vaccination programs that they support in the third world and, and not just the COVID vaccines, but other diseases, too, and their work supporting different aspects of economic freedom. When it comes to the Great Reset, I don't think the extreme conspiracy theories are true, but I don't like the way that they're trying to take advantage of a crisis to enact a bunch of proposals that wouldn't ordinarily be approved. 
and I think all proposals need to be calmly discussed and debated publicly. I think that the situation has improved so much already and is continuing to improve in a way that will take a lot of the wind out of the sails of the Great Reset. And I suspect that whatever proposals they make, they will only partially be implemented and will be moderated over time, just like prior climate proposals. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener on the topic? We'll have a link to Klaus Schwab's book, COVID-19, The Great Reset, so you can read that. Uh, Also, an article on the World Economic Forum, a link to the World Economic Forum's homepage and their YouTube channel, an article on The Great Reset, as well as the Forum's Great Reset homepage, and a content-free Great Reset teaser trailer video, so no spoilers, which (laughs) some people might say is the point. Right. We'll also have a link to a podcast on The Great Reset where you hear Klaus Schwab and Prince Charles and other figures talking about it when it was announced. And this is their own podcast, so they're going rah-rah Great Reset in this thing. Also, a Great Reset launch highlights video. We'll have a link to the now-deleted You'll Own Nothing and You'll Be Happy video, as well as uh, what they have to say about the Fourth Industrial Revolution and a Manager Magazine article about the breakup of Davos Man as a single kind of figure. Also, a link to a webpage on U.S. government spending as a percentage of gross domestic product, an article on crony capitalism, and an article on Adam Smith's quote set in its context. Excellent. All right, Jimmy, uh, let's move on to our mysterious feedback. And as I said before, this feedback is coming from our recent episode on Randonautica in Randonauting. Uh, and we got some good feedback. Yeah, we had a huge amount of really good feedback on this episode, both pro and con. And I only wish I, we could get to more of it here. In what follows, I've tried to come up with a representative sample of the different strands of feedback we got. Okay, let's start with Allie on Twitter, who wrote, I just downloaded Randonautica after listening to your podcast. My dog walks will improve. They should give you guys commission. Rocky, my dog, says hello and thanks. And that's one thing you can do with Randonautica, as we pointed out. You can just use it to go random places and you and your dog can see areas of your neighborhood you wouldn't normally see. I'm sure that'd be a lot of fun for the dog. You don't have to use it to do any intention experiments. You can just go places. Cole Wiseman writes on YouTube, anyone who believes in paranormal power or mystical abilities of technology or by their own mind is giving power to things that are due to God. Therefore, they are opened up to demonic influence. That is why the church says it is wrong to believe in superstition. You believe in the superstition You gave creation credit for God's ability, therefore the demonic can influence it. Well, let's sort of take these in reverse order. So I didn't credit superstition. I I didn't, or I should say it this way. I didn't credit nature with an ability to affect uh, random number generators. You know, I didn't say, oh, human consciousness has the ability to do this. I said, it's legitimate to experiment and see what human consciousness can do. And I reported the results of my experiment. But as I noted, our statistical sample was way, way, way too small to draw any conclusions. So I have not said that human consciousness does have this ability. Second, even if I did, that wouldn't make it superstition. The word superstition, not in the church's sense, the word superstition is used in more than one way. One way involves non-religious things 
like, oh, if a black cat crosses your path, that you're going to have bad luck. Okay, that's superstition in one sense, but it's not superstition in the sense that the church uses the term. Superstition, if you check the catechism of the Catholic Church and people like Thomas Aquinas, they'll explain that superstition involves an excess or a defect that's either too much or too little in regard to some religious thing. Like, I think I've got to say 50 rosaries a day or God won't love me. Well, that's a superstition of excess. Or I can never think about God at all, at all, and I'll just go to heaven automatically. That's a superstition of defect. So it's got to involve a religious subject to involve the sin of superstition as the church understands it. Now, there is a parallel, which is scientific superstition, or the scientific equivalent of superstition, which is another way to say bad science, where you think you're seeing an effect in the data and you're not you know, you've drawn a wrong conclusion. And, and okay, there's a kind of parallel to where into religious superstition, where you think there's either more of an effect or less of an effect than there really is. But the only way to sort that out is to do the experiments and see what does the data say about how much of an effect there is. You can't, out of the gate, assume human consciousness has an ability to affect random number generators, or that it doesn't. If you're looking at this as a scientific question, you've got to run the experiments, and they've got to be big enough and powerful enough for you to find out, is there an effect, and if so, how much of one? Well, we did one dinky little experiment, and as we said, there was just to illustrate this, and we said there's no way to draw a conclusion based on this. We don't have scientific evidence here. So I wasn't, in fact, doing those things. I was not opening myself up to demonic influence. I was exploring, I was using a basic form of scientific method to explore God's creation and try to figure out how it works. And that's intrinsically legitimate. That's why God gave us intellects. And I even prayed to God for protection first. So I was consciously excluding and calling on God to exclude demonic influence. This is one of those areas where when people are too quick, and I understand the temptation to do this, but when people are too quick to cry demons, it brings disrepute on the Christian faith because people who are non-Christians will look at that and, and they're not even committed to believing in demons yet. And they'll say, oh, here's the demon thing again. It's like this guy is a believer in witch doctors who thinks that there are evil spirits that are responsible for everything in the world. And, you know, that's not the Christian view of things. There is a limited role for demons in, in creation, and we need to be aware of that. But we should not jump to demons as the explanation every time something happens or accuse everybody who is experimenting with something of being involved or opening themselves to demons. That is not the way the church looks at this, and it's not the way reason would suggest we look at this. Also, um, in terms of could human, uh, human nature have an ability to remotely influence things? Well, Thomas Aquinas thought it did, and he's a doctor of the church. If you go back and listen to episodes 105 and 106 on Thomas Aquinas and the Occult, it could provide some useful perspective. Also, a little more recently, you might want to get a copy of a book by Alice Weisinger, 
called Occult Phenomena in the Light of Theology. It came out in 1957, and it takes Aquinas' principles and applies them to modern parapsychological studies, and it's got an imprimatur, and if in case this matters for you, it's pre-Vatican II. Okay, Steve Numerator on YouTube writes, I support Jimmy and Dom and their endeavors, and I very much enjoy these videos on YouTube. I simply want to add the footnote that we must tread warily in all things that touch upon the unseen realm of spiritual reality, because one simply can't claim to be protected in such things by proclaiming one's innocence or good intentions. We literally cannot see the reefs and the sharks that lie in wait when sailing such deep and mysterious spiritual waters. And I agree with all of those sentiments. There are dangers out there in the spiritual world that we don't know about and can't fully anticipate. And that's why before doing a single experiment, I expressly said, I'm not calling on any spirits here, but I am calling on God for protection because I don't, you know, I can't rule out negative spiritual things here. But we also should not allow ourselves to be paralyzed. I mean, yes, if you go swimming, you might encounter a shark, but that doesn't mean you should never go swimming. We can't allow ourselves to be paralyzed by fears of what might happen. We have to look at what is likely to happen. The odds are, unless you're in a really strange place, you probably won't get eaten by a shark if you go down to the beach. And similarly, if you do a single intention experiment, and you invoke God and you consciously exclude invoking anybody else, you're probably not going to end up with a case of demonic possession. All right. Eduardo sends an email. I recently listened to your podcast on Randonautica and was very impressed by the thorough coverage given, and in particular to Jimmy's Catholic perspective on this newest internet craze. Although I understand that the jury is still out on how well this app actually delivers on the intentions of its users, I feel that we may may be missing the point to the dangers that this app can lead unsuspecting young people towards. Consider this question. How is Randonautica different from, say, a Ouija board or tarot cards? So first thing I want to say is I totally agree about young people. And not just young people, but this is app is popular among young people. Unless they're well-formed in their faith, they absolutely could be using this just like a Ouija board or, and, or, you know, trying to invoke not just testing what does human consciousness do, but more be more open to other mystical, weird things that might be happening that could include demons. So I agree, you know, this can be misused. And even the Randonautica webpage notes that some people have been using this for religious magical things. And they say, talk to your religious leaders to find out what's appropriate in your faith. So absolutely, this could be abused. But there is a principle that is involved that would differentiate it from Ouija boards and tarot cards. In both Ouija boards and tarot cards, you're appealing to, an, to a process that humans are not in control of and trying to use that process to get information. And the deciding thing that governs the morality of this, the f- most fundamental thing is, what are you calling on to control this random process, whether it's the movement of a planchette or which cards get drawn or what's the role of dice or does the high priest pull the Urim and Thummim 
out of the ephod. This is essentially a version, or it's, it can be conceived of as a version of sortilege, where humans use a, a process we don't control to try to get information from some source. And the question is, what source are you invoking? If you're invoking demons, automatically wrong. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Invoking human spirits that are departed, forbidden for Christians by Deuteronomy. If you are in, if you are invoking God, however, it's potentially legitimate. We have sortilege in both the Old and the New Testament, where the high priests used it, and in the Book of Acts, where the apostles used it. So, appealing to God to control a process that we don't and give us a sign—that's legitimate. That at least in some circumstances. Now, we'll have a future episode where we talk about the details of that. You have to be careful with that because it's easy to deceive yourself into thinking you're getting a signal you're not. But in principle, that works. So in the case of a Ouija board, you're typically invoking spirits. And in Randonautica, if you're doing it the way I did, you're not. So that's the difference. I didn't invoke any spirits. I made the point of saying I'm not invoking any spirits. I simply ran a basic experiment seeing could there be a natural effect to this? And I asked God for protection. All right. Ed in New Mexico on YouTube writes, Jimmy, I think you're a victim of confirmation bias. You were looking for a throw rug and claimed to have found one, but it appears what is in the photo is an area rug, which is much bigger than a throw rug. An area rug is too large to throw. Okay. I recognize you got a point here. I don't think it would have affected my interpretation because before I, after I selected the noun throw rug from a random noun generator, I went on Amazon and typed in throw rug so I could see pictures of throw rugs and have, uh, you know, a sense of, okay, precisely what are people talking about when they say throw rug? And like, for example, a throw rug is not the same thing as a doormat. And among the pictures that Amazon showed me were really big ones like the ones that I saw. And so even though those would also by sometimes be called area rugs, they showed up in the search results that I saw, and they may have even been flagged as area rugs on Amazon, but that's what it showed me. And so that's the mental image I had of in a throw rug, including these larger things. And so if my intention had any effect on what I found it would have incorporated those larger size rugs. Not applicable, uh, writes on YouTube. What about going randomly to somewhere to talk about Christ? Yeah, not not applicable is is not the only person who who asked about this. You could pray to God and say, hey, please use this random number generator to help me find where I can evangelize or where I can, you know, maybe help someone or where I can find a church or whatever. So I, you know, and you can absolutely do that. In that case, you're doing sortilage, uh, you know, like in the Bible, you're not in control of this, but you're asking God to guide you. Or even if you don't invoke God, you could form an intention and uh, just humanly and see, does your human intention that doesn't invoke God have an effect? James D. wrote on Facebook, I'm stationed in Okinawa, and my oldest daughter is a college student back in North Carolina. She was telling me about the Randonautica trip she took late at night with her friends. All three trips arrived at strangely specific locations. 
The final one, they intended a clown and were taken to a party supply store with a clown in the window. She told me she'd not been to Mass in a few weeks, but had an immediate examination of conscience, then went to confession and Mass that weekend. I'm not sure how or if Randonautica works, but convincing my daughter to receive the sacraments doesn't seem like the work of old scratch. I sent her a link to this podcast. Great show. I'm proud to be a listener and patron. Thanks, James. And I agree. Uh, this is an illustration of how things should not automatically be chalked up to, oh, this has to be bad. In this case, something very good came out of it. Jason writes on Facebook, why does the app tell you to breathe? Well, I'll tell you the real reason I think it does that. It has a series of messages when it's generating your random point and it and and you don't always see all of them. So like the first one tells you to breathe another. Well, the first one, I think, actually, if I remember correctly, tells you to prepare to embark on your journey and then it'll say breathe and then it'll say clear your mind. And then it may have other things it'll say after that. I don't know. I never saw anything beyond the third, but it doesn't always show you all of them. And what that tells me is the reason it's throwing those up is to distract you while it's talking to the server and generating your random point. Right. So it's just a question of, you know, how close are you to a phone tower? How good is your cell phone reception? How slow, how fast is the computer being today? And it's just filling time in order to keep you entertained while they generate the point and get it back to your phone. Classic programmer trick, because nobody wants to see the spinning beach ball. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Flying Car 100 on YouTube writes, So I tried making my intention pizza, and the second time I ended across the street from a pizza place. Well, that could, that's a hit, as they say, so that's a data point. I would say that I wouldn't regard it as a particularly powerful data point because in if you're in an urban area there are lots of pizza places and so the odds of running across one is um is is not that low <laughs> i would go if you want a more powerful test i would go for something rarer that you're not likely to find out visibly in public like a pizza place yeah i live in a small town of 10,000 we have uh, 11 pizza places so that would be a bad test for me <laughs> Brandon Dar writes on YouTube, I want to give Jimmy 10 blank lottery tickets and have him use a random number generator. Maybe he is psychic. Uh, I, maybe I am, but I don't plan to dabble in these waters a lot. So, uh, <laughs> so I don't know. Also, if it worked with your lottery tickets, it could be because of something that parapsychology researchers refer to as the first timer effect. Apparently, people who they do work on initially can perform really well, and then that can fade with time. In fact, back during the 1970s, when Hal Putoff and Russell Targ were at SRI, the Stanford Research Institute, and they were doing early remote viewing experiments, they would get people like from the CIA coming in saying, we're interested in this, but, uh, you know, how do we know this works? And they would have Ingo Swan or someone do an experiment, and they call them outbound or beacon experiments. You send someone to a location that you don't know, and then you try to view what's at that location. And so Ingo would, or whoever would, Helga Hammett or whoever, would sketch and show it to them, and they would be impressed, but they wouldn't be fully convinced. And so what Putoff and Targ would do is they would say, okay, now you're going to be the viewer. 
and they would send somebody out and they would have the government official do a viewing. And because of the first timer effect, they would often do well and that would really impress them. So I, it could work. On the other hand, the, since I'm not trained in how to do this, even if I had 10 blank lottery tickets, the first timer effect might run out partway through them. Or if Randonautica was my first timer <laughs> thing, it, it, it might, I might have already shot my wad on that. I have not yet done any of these experiments, so I might try with the random number generator and a lottery tickets. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Matthew Devick writes on YouTube, just have to say that, Jimmy, your interaction with the Chaldean woman was super heartwarming. This episode was amazing, but that part of your journey made me smile. I knew you were awesome before, but the fact that you respect people by learning a few key phrases in their language puts you way over the top in my book. Well, thank you. You're very kind, but it's just something that I thought of a number of years ago as a way to be friendly and show Christian love for people, even if they're not Christians. And it's something anybody can do. There are websites that, you know, will have lists of here's hello in a bunch of languages and here's thank you. And so anybody can learn to do it. And I found it to be a really great way to reach out to people from other cultures. Excellent. Well, thank you, everyone, for your mysterious feedback on the Random Nautica episode. That was excellent to hear from. And we'd love to get more from you on other topics. We'll have that in a second. But first, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? So we have a technology theme in Mysterious Headlines. Since we were just talking about the Randonautica app for your phone and remote viewing, guess what? There's a remote viewing app now for picking stocks by crowdsourced remote viewing. And they use associative remote viewing, which is where, and if you go back and listen to our remote viewing episodes, you'll learn about this. But the idea is if a stock price goes up, you'll be shown one image. If a stock price goes down tomorrow, you'll be shown a different image and you try to view which image you will be shown. And so you're associating this image with a stock price going up or down. And this is considered one of the best ways to try to predict the future in the remote viewing community. And now they're doing it for cash. So if you're one of their top remote viewers of a given day, you get 10 bucks. And over time, they're trying to build data about can associative remote viewing predict the stock, predict what stocks are going to do in the stock market. And so it's an ongoing experiment that they're crowdsourcing through people's phones. But all the usual cautions apply, so be aware of that. <laughs> Stockbrokers will try anything. <laughs> yeah. My concern is anytime anybody finds out a new way to predict what's going to happen in the market, the market adjusts and incorporates that and it loses its power over time. Right. So if, if it turned out that associative remote viewing will predict the stock market, the market would just incorporate that and it would lose its effect over time because then business leaders would be able to know, oh, what should we, what should we pursue? What's going to raise our stock price? The other article is another technology-related one about xenobots. Xenos is Greek for alien or strange, and so these are strange robots. The, in fact, what makes them strange is they are living. These are robots. The first living robots are made out of living cells. And we'll have a video about this for you so you can see them and watch how they work. The What they did was they a bunch of roboticists, and this was partially funded by DARPA, if I recall. They used computers to try to figure out if we stitch certain cells together, what can we get the resulting combination to do? So, for example, they would take cells from a frog 
and they would use some cells as kind of scaffolding, but then they would also have heart cells that contract and expand, and they would build a little robot that can walk in a straight line or that can go in a circle or things like that. And so they found ways to do that. And you can watch videos of the first xenobots or living robots. The hope in the long term is to use them to create ones that can actually do useful work, like maybe in your own body, made out of your own cells so you don't have an immune reaction. They could send in or or an inflammation reaction. They could send in a little bot made out of your own cells to perform some kind of medical thing inside you, like clean out plaque or repair uh, something. And since uh, living things are biodegradable in a way metal and plastic are not, you could send Xeno, you could release a swarm of Xenobots into the ocean, let's say, and have them eat up and convert the plastic that's floating there into something. And then when they run out of plastic, they die and the Xenobots themselves are reabsorbed by the environment. And as we all know, nothing could ever possibly go wrong <laughs> with robots. I, for one, welcome our new living robot overlords. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So those are some great headlines. So that's it from us. What did you think about our discussion about the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset and their Davos meetings? You can tell us what you think by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Be sure to, if you have not yet done so, subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at the SQPN YouTube channel, where you should also make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. You'll find links to uh, all of Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>